If you would please take your Bibles and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I almost hesitate to have you open your Bibles because our text consists of two words. In 1 Thessalonians 5, verse number 17, Paul tells us, pray continually. Since February the 24th of this year, we've been doing a series of meditations. And in doing so, we've reviewed things that we've seen in the past and sort of put them together. I've tried to as fuel for meditation. They're not intended to be exhaustive or even instructive, but to remind us of what we've studied and to present them in a way in which we can meditate on them in the coming week. I had actually intended to do one sermon of meditation, a meditation on gratitude, because it was on February the 24th. I had hoped that Dan Noble would come back to us. We were grateful that God had spared him. Uh, he had a stroke back in December and made remarkable progress. But he and Lonnie didn't come that Sunday or for several Sundays after. And so I decided I would keep doing meditations, looking for them to come back to us. And so we had a meditation on love, on hope, on joy, on trials. Dan has, in fact, come back to us, but seven months later, I find myself still doing meditations. One of the issues that has come up again and again in this series is that we have allowed non-believers, or the world if you wish, to define terms and concepts like love, like hope, joy, faith, things like that, that generally speaking we'd say, well, these are Christian words, but we have allowed non-Christians to define them. And as a result, we have turned away from what Scripture tells us about these things. I think that is the case, again, with the subject we're looking at today, um, the subject of our meditation, and that is prayer. What is prayer? Well, look it up on the Internet. Google it, and you'll find something like this. Prayer is an invocation or act that seeks to activate a rapport with an object of worship through deliberate communication. In the narrow sense, the term refers to an act of supplication or intercession directed toward a deity or a deified ancestor. More generally, prayer can have the purpose of thanksgiving or praise. And in comparative religion, is closely associated with the more abstract forms of meditation and with charms or spells. What does the scripture say? What do we learn? What have we seen? We've done several series on prayer. How would we define prayer? Prayer is responding to God. It is talking back, not in the bad sense, but God has spoken and we respond to him in prayer. As simple as this definition is, it raises a whole host of issues. Is it really possible to talk to God? Um, if prayer is talking to God, what do we call it when we speak to other gods? Do we call it prayer? Does God listen to us? I think this is a deeply troubling question at times. Does God hear the prayer of those who are not his people? Does he hear the prayer of unbelievers? There have been great debates about this. 
Does God want to listen to us or is he forced into listening to us? What kinds of things can we or should we say to God as we respond to him? And then the big question is, does it matter? Does it make a difference if we pray or not? I think it actually boils down to one single issue. Does it make any sense for us to pray? What we find in scripture is that indeed it does make sense to pray. And I would make the argument this way. Persons talk to one another. God is a person and each one of us is a person. Therefore, God talks to us and we talk back. We respond to him in prayer. I think we should begin with beginnings. Who began the conversation? Who spoke first? If prayer is dialogue with God, who started the conversation? We've talked about this numerous times. Um, It is the critical issue, though. I think if you don't get this right, you can still pray, but I think you've really missed something important. Who was the first one to speak? Who began this conversation? We find in Genesis 1 that it is God who begins the conversation as he creates the world. He says, let there be light. This is critical. It colors the way that we look at prayer, the way we think of prayer, ultimately the way that we pray. If we think it begins with us, I think the tone, the direction, everything is different than if, in fact, we see ourselves as responding to God. The common view of prayer, even among many believers, is that we begin the conversation and we can get God to change his mind about certain things. And we can get it if we know the formula, if we know the secret, if we know, basically, no one would ever say this, but if we know how to play God, when I mean we play him, we can trick him into giving us what it is that we want. One writer has put it this way, in the majority of books written and in the sermons preached upon prayer, the human element fills the scene almost entirely. It is the conditions which we must meet, the promises we must claim, the things we must do in order to get our request granted. And God's claims, God's right, God's glory are often disregarded. It's because we think it begins with us, rather than seeing God as the initiator of this conversation. We see throughout Scripture that God, in fact, does initiate the conversation, sometimes with words, as with Abraham, sometimes through circumstances, as with Hannah, uh, who was barren, and it caused her to cry out to God. Sometimes through Scripture, in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel said, I understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. 70 years had passed, so now he cries out to God, God, this is what you said in your word. Now keep what, in fact, you have promised. In a book by Craig Gay, entitled The Way of the Modern World, or Why It's Tempting to Live as Though God Doesn't Exist, he makes a statement in the concluding chapter of the book, Prayer is perhaps the most, the church's single most important witness to the living God. At least so long as prayer is not itself surrendered to the therapeutic or to the logic of technique. 
That is, living when and where we do, the temptation is so strong to see prayer as a means to an end, as a way to improve your place in life, your status, the things that you need. Francis Schaeffer, in his book, it's actually the first book I read by him, The Church at the End of the 20th Century, asked the question, suppose we woke up one morning and found that God had removed two things from the Bible. First, the empowering of the Holy Spirit. The second, the reality of prayer. Would our lives be any different? At this point, I may have lost some of you because you're thinking, Damon, we know this stuff. We've heard it before. We've heard it enough. Then if you will, please allow me to ask a question. Do you pray as you should? Is your prayer life what you think it should be? And if not, why not? If prayer is the church's most single important witness to the living God, why don't we pray as we should? Are our lives any different in the absence of prayer? Let me suggest some avenues for thought. The big issue is if God is in control, dot, dot, dot. If you've prayed at all, you've come to one of two or maybe more conclusions. Either God is a liar and he doesn't keep his promises, or God keeps his promises. I just don't know the secret of how to get him to do that. If we believe that God is in control over all things, then some would say, why do I need to pray? God's in control. He's, he knows better than I do. I should just, in fact, let him do what he wants to do. Remember, prayer is a conversation. God has spoken to us so that we will speak back to him. God isn't just some guy who's way over there and he's in control of everything, but he doesn't want to talk to us. He doesn't talk to us. And so we don't need to talk to him. It's quite the contrary. God is speaking to us if we would, in fact, listen. We are told to pray. Paul tells the Thessalonians, pray continually. In the King James, it is pray without ceasing. So how does it work, some would say? Um, Either God is in control or our prayers are really important. I think it's our puny human, the limits of our thinking that it's either or. We can't, in fact, imagine that God could be in control and that our prayers, in fact, are significant. And I think perhaps that's why we do not pray as we should. We just, well, God's in control. He knows what's best. He'll take care of me. I think another reason we don't pray as we should is because we live in the modern world and we face, we face unique challenges. Um, the world has been secularized. The central sectors of life, uh, religion has been sucked out. Any idea of the supernatural has been removed. Um, we live, in fact, in what has been called a disenchanted world. There's no place for mystery. There's no place for God. 
there's no place for prayer. I tell my students in one of my lectures that it's really interesting that in the 19th century, as as society becomes more and more secularized and religion is sort of shunted off to the side, the church is shunted off to the side, mystery disappears from society. Everything is a matter of technique. If you want to know how to do something, you just have to figure out the steps to do it, and then you'll know what to do. But it's also during this time, as we get rid of mystery, because we know everything, that you find the rise of the mystery novel. Because the reality is we do need mystery in our lives. And if we don't see it in the world, because we know everything, then we need almost like taking vitamins. You know, we don't get it from our food, so we'll take a pill. So we'll read a mystery novel and it'll sort of make the hair on our arms stand up and they're, ooh, and then we can't figure out who did it. And then at the end, because in the modern world we can't have total mystery, at the end we find out who killed whomever in the story. In the secularized world, prayer is reduced to technique. And there are numerous Christian books on prayer that are basically just about technique how to pray and get what you want. In a pluralistic world or society, prayer is just one of your options. And usually, if we'd be honest, it's not option number one. Uh, Option number one is I've got to figure out what I need to do to arrange this situation. And, you know, somewhere down the line when all these options don't work, then prayer becomes an option because we have many options in a pluralistic world. But in a privatized world, prayer is reduced to something I do for myself. I do it by myself, but I do it for myself. And somehow we've rationalized this because of the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand, they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received the reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door and pray to your father who is unseen. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will will reward you. We are not to pray to be seen or heard by others. It doesn't mean that we are to pray only about ourselves. That it's, I'm praying for me. Give me this day my daily bread. You'll notice that that's not what Jesus said, is it? Give us this day our daily bread. I'm not the only one who needs God's daily supply. I'm not the only one who is dependent upon God for life itself. I'm not the only sinner in the world. I'm not the only one being tested. I'm not the only one who needs God's grace. This is true of my brothers and sisters. And so when we enter into prayer, the modern world says, yeah, that's maybe option number four, let's say we move it up to option number one, there's still the temptation in the modern world that my prayer will be about me. It will be about me. What about others? I would suggest to you that one of the things that could help, could aid our prayer life, is if we thought about others before we thought about ourselves. Because you may be, let's say you get up in the morning or at night before you go to bed and you're thinking, I'm doing well. Everything's fine. I don't really know what to pray about. Well, what about your brothers and sisters? 
and not simply those here at Melrose, but in other churches around the world. It isn't all about us. A third thing to consider about why we don't pray is it's not easy. It is not. Paul understood this. He understood the weakness of the flesh that goes against continuing in prayer. And so you find it throughout his writings in Romans 12. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. In Philippians 4, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. To the Colossians chapter 4, verse 2, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And then in 1 Timothy 2, he gives instructions about public prayer. I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone. And then here in our text, if you look beginning at verse number 16, be joyful always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Paul tells the Thessalonians, pray without ceasing in the King James. And I don't think that Paul is saying that 24-7, this is all that we do. Because if you look at the passage, be joyful always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances. What Paul is calling for is rejoicing and praying and giving thanks that is a characteristic of our life. Prayer isn't something that's over here, my options, what to do in case of emergency, you know, break the glass, you know, ring the alarm, get God's attention. This is to be an attitude that we are to have. The issue is not quantity per se, as in all night prayer meetings. But in fact, and I think they do have their place, but rather we should not think that we are heard for the quantity of our prayers. As Jesus said, when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. I would suggest to you that one of the reasons our Father knows what our needs are is because he in fact has created that need. That is his speaking to us that we would respond to him in prayer about that particular need. Quantity is not the issue. Quality is not the issue either. Um, Paul tells us in Romans 8 that, that the Spirit speaks for us with words that cannot be uttered. Yeah, we do the best we can, but I mean, let's face it, we're speaking to the infinite personal God of the universe, the God who spoke and made the world. Do you think that you have a beautiful enough prayer <laughs> worthy of his attention? No. It is his grace that he hears us, and it is the Spirit, it is the Son who intercedes for us. It is not quantity or quality. But it is, I think, a matter of taking prayer seriously. To say that God has spoken and now I'm returning, I'm speaking back to him in prayer. God is merciful. He seeks to work out his will in our life. As Jesus prayed, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So what are we going to do? We find it difficult to pray. We live in a world in which prayer has become technique. 
what are we to do? Let me suggest some possible answers. Not solutions, not techniques, but something to think about. I think we need to begin with a recognition, an awareness, a remembering of our dependence. We would rather think of ourselves as being independent, but to be human is in fact to be dependent. We are wholly dependent upon God. There's nothing that we have that has not been given to us. One writer put it this way, radical dependency marks human beings. To be a human being is to be radically dependent. For some reason, we don't like that. We don't like that, especially with regard in relation to God. But let me read to you. This is written by someone, and we went, when we went through the series on memory, someone whose father had Alzheimer's. This is what she wrote. We are radically dependent upon our parents, families, and friends, or other responsible persons, from the moment of our first breath and all through our formative years. And we are radically dependent upon God for, among other among manifold graces and loves, the blessedness of everlasting life. Radical dependence challenges the ultimately isolating ends of the de rigueur, uh, absolutized of our postmodern time. In the modern world, we are independent. Really? You're not. And I think for us to get on the path to prayer as to pray as we should, is to begin with this awareness. But our culture prizes freedom, autonomy, individualism, when in fact we are dependent upon one another, beginning with our families, and then our communities, and then civil authorities. But fundamentally, we are dependent upon God. As Paul wrote to the Corinthians, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord Jesus Christ through whom all things came and through whom we live. We have life because of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are creatures. Paul told the Greeks at uh, Mars Hill, the Areopagus in Athens, for in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. This means that everything we have is a gift. Everything. Everything we have is gift. And we should not be valued. We should not value ourselves or others for our capabilities. Certain capacities. Oh, this person's really gifted. This person's really talented. Yeah, that was a gift. That is a gift. Job said, after a series of disasters, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. We are valued. Humans are gifted and valued because God loves us, and he continues to care for us. If we forget that to be human is, in fact, to be dependent, to be human is to be gifted and loved, then we will, I think, forget about praying. It will not seem as being incredibly important. So that's where we begin. We are dependent. 
The second is tied to it, but in a different way, and that is humility. In James chapter 4, James addresses the attitude that is contrary to humility. This is verses 13 through 17. Now listen you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast and brag, such boasting is evil. There are several assumptions that come into play here. That is that time is our friend. It's on our side. It's at our disposal. It's a commodity. Um, the words of Bob Dylan's song, you, you act as though you're, uh, that time is money. You act as though your life is worth its weight in gold. Um, we see it as a commodity. And the only thing that seems important to us or that we think that matters is our own capacity, our own capability. I've got the time. Do I have the energy? Do I have the capacity to do the things I want to do in the next year, for example? Go into a town and buy and sell. James speaks of this as being presumptuous. That in fact, we act as though we can live as long as we want. It touches choice. We think we have the freedom of choice to do whatever it is we want. And it touches ability. If we want, we can do it. In modern, modern parlance, si se puede. We can do it. Or in the words of the poem Invictus, I am the master of my fate, I am the captain of my soul. This is the way people think. This is, in fact, ordinary and natural, which is exactly why James writes about it. Because this is our default setting. Our default setting is not, I need to talk to God in prayer. God has done all these things for me and I need to respond to God in prayer. I need to enter into this dialogue. We're basically, yeah, I'm fine. Um, This is what I'm going to do. I've got my plans laid out. So James addresses this as saying there are three fundamental truths here. First of all, the ignorance of human beings. Why, he says, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. Proverbs 27.1 says, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. Yeah, um, we have no idea what's going to happen tomorrow. We are ignorant. Secondly, we are frail. You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. James is not saying that we are insignificant. That it doesn't matter that we've ever been here. Okay. But that we are temporary. Our time here is temporary. And we have significance. But it's temporary. So how can we say, well, this is what I'm going to do? There's one more thing, though. It's not enough to know that we are ignorant or that we are frail. We go back to the matter of dependence. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will do, live and do this or that. This is a conviction found throughout Scripture, from Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane to Paul when he speaks to the Ephesian believers. I will come back if it is God's will, he tells them. 
And then to the Roman believers in Romans 15, where he says that he's on his way, plans to go to Spain, but he's going to stop in Rome. James is not saying don't make plans. We've talked about this. He's not saying bless your plans by saying if it's the Lord's will, as some sort of Christian mantra, and then things will turn out the way that you want. If you say, if it is the Lord's will, what? James is in no way encouraging a passivity. Rather, he is calling us to walk in humility. Humility that recognizes our ignorance of the future, our frailty as temporal creatures, and our dependence upon God. A third thing that I would suggest that might aid us in getting back on the path to lives of prayer is listening and knowing God. If prayer is our response to God, it's our part of the dialogue, we need to be listening to his side of the conversation. We need to know to whom it is we are listening. Otherwise, I might think I'm listening to God and I'm actually just listening to myself. <laughs> I'm listening to my own desires. What I think, I, I, I imagine somehow that it's God, but it's in fact Damon saying, this is what I want. In the Psalms, which is a collection of prayers, knowing God goes hand in hand with knowing about God. That if you do not revere God's character, um, if you have no faith in his character, um, then you have no knowledge of God. You don't know who's talking. You don't know who you're talking to. So if you go through the Psalms, the psalmist is always telling us what God has done. This is what God has done. And this is what I'm asking him to do in the future. There's also the sense that, yes, God is the Lord. We may forget that from time to time, but he is God. And knowing the ways of the Lord, knowing the Lord, if you do any reading at all, or if you just in personal relationships, you'll, you'll read something and you'll like, that doesn't sound like this author. Or you hear, so-and-so said this, and you're like, that doesn't really sound like that person. Why would you say that? Because you have a certain knowledge of them. In scripture, God reveals himself. Do we know who God is? Do we know what are the types of things he has done? Do we know the types of things he says? Are we listening? I think we want to know ourselves, but to know ourselves, I think we need to know God. In Psalm 139, O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I arise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. You hem me in before, or behind and before. You have laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. It continues later. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. 
My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Prayer of necessity is the reflection of our knowledge of God. Imagine a child speaking to his or her parents. Their knowledge of their parents at two is different from what it is at five or ten or fifteen. A weird thing happens there in the teenage years where suddenly the parents are seen as having lost quite a few IQ points. And then as you get into your 30s and 40s, you realize how wise your parents were. It might be a bad analogy, but when we pray to God, who do we think we're talking to? Do we have knowledge of who he is? If we do not know who God is, then we really don't know what prayer is. Our prayer is more in line with what we find with what Google coughs up for us. But let's go beyond that. Let's go a bit deeper. If we don't know who God is, how do we even know if somebody's listening? How do we know if he's even there? We could, in fact, just be talking to ourselves or to the wall, to some imagined being. When it comes down to it, we wouldn't even know if we were dealing with reality. But it is in scripture that we are told who God is. We don't completely understand him. We've talked about this before. There's stuff in the Old Testament that we, I don't get. Okay? But we see in Jesus this grace and this compassion and this love. I think that should guide our thinking in our prayers. Only a knowledge of the God of the Bible can assure us that our lives have meaning and have a destiny. And only this assurance can make prayer a meaningful part of our lives. A couple more things and then I'll stop. I think one of the things that is required, and here I hesitate to speak, I find myself so deficient here, self-discipline. I think one of the things that would help us is if, in fact, we would set aside a particular time in which to speak to God. Uh, Yes, we can speak to God all the time, pray continually as we go through the day, but a specific time in the day in which we sit down and focus on what has God said to me through my circumstances this day? What has God been saying to me through the lives of my friends? What has he said to me in scripture? I think in the same way that with married couples, yes, you talk to each other all throughout the day, but sometimes you need to set aside specific times. You know, let's, let's have a conversation. Let's just talk about what's going on in our lives. This is not a, a legalism. This isn't a technique like, okay, this is what you're supposed to do and you have to do it this way every day. Um, but I think, I think we would do well. It would help us if, in fact, 
we would uh, institute a discipline, a schedule in our lives. Say perhaps at the beginning of the day, when I wake up, the first thing I want to do or after I have breakfast at some point, I want to spend time with God. Psalm 5 that we sang today is the morning prayer. We need to be careful though, because we're human beings. We might think, oh, I prayed this morning, so I'm going to have a good day. But somehow it baptizes what's going to happen. Um, Yeah, not quite. One more thing. Children. Teaching children to pray and praying for the children. Christian parents have a vital ministry in that they are to raise their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. It's a responsibility of parents, not schools or Sunday school, though we do appreciate what Jesse does every Sunday, working with the children. In the home, parents and grandparents are to pray. Pray that their children would grow strong in the faith. And they are to teach their children how to pray. I think initially by example, and later on through instruction. There are few things more wonderful than to hear a child pray. It's, it's the simplicity, the faith, um, it's wonderful. And it's wonderful to hear them join in our prayers. There was a time when we had a family used to sit on the back pew there and at the end of prayers, uh, Colin would say, Amen. He was like two or three years old. He was part of the prayer, part of the praying. It's wonderful. What if you don't have children? Again, I do not have children. But we still pray for the children. We pray for the children of this congregation. We are to share in that ministry. So I've got them listed here. I think chronologically, Lucy being the oldest who will turn seven this Friday, Marcus, Addie, Gracie, Mabel, Ezra, Nia, Ransom, Jacob, Nevin, Georgie, and the one who is to come in February. We need to pray that God would protect them, that God would work in their lives, He would draw them to himself. He would keep them in good health. We shouldn't say, well, that's parents' responsibility. No, we are all part of this. And as I said earlier, I don't know what to pray for. My life is pretty, pretty smooth right now. Okay, forget yourself. Think of the others in the congregation. Think of the children who are part of this, this church. I'm convinced that theology or knowledge is not what we need to have lives of prayer. Because as I said at the beginning, you've heard all this before. May God be gracious to us, open our eyes and our ears, listen as he speaks to us through our circumstances, through his word, and may we respond in faith, in prayer. Let's pray together.
our Father prayer is something at times we imagine we are quite capable of doing on our own. And yet I suspect we don't always do it as we should. It, it becomes about us. We see ourselves as initiating a conversation. We don't see ourselves as dependent. We see ourselves as quite capable. And there are times when we see you as an errand boy sent to satisfy our wandering desires. It is amazing that you hear us. But even more amazing that you want to listen to us. You have spoken to us. You're not expecting a deafening silence in response. As our Father, you expect your children to respond to you in prayer. And by your grace, by your grace, may we do this. Forgive us for our prayerlessness. May your spirit work in our hearts. And again, by your grace, may we become people of prayer. We do remember Zib. She has an interview tomorrow. She's worked faithfully for four years in a very difficult job. We ask that you would make it possible for her to be to get this new position. May we remember to pray for one another in the coming week. Now as we leave this place, may your spirit and your grace go with us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.